we are in a series called Relationships in Uncertain Times, and this morning I was going to talk about expectations. And it was going to be fun, and it was going to be light, and we were going to talk about the Bible, and it was going to be very engaging. Um, uh, but with the events of this past week, I wanted to talk about something that's a little heavier, a lot heavier, and uh, I will do my best to do my best. And so I just wanted to give some caveats before I start. If I say something that offends you, my plea to you would be that you would uh, come to me and we would discuss it. That is a lost art in America today. Uh, we ghost people, we unfriend them. I didn't like what you said, so I'm just gonna dismiss what you say. This is the opposite of the Holy Spirit. When you begin to dismiss someone who sounds different than you or might have a different perspective of you, you do not have the heart of Christ. That's not what he does. Now, there are some people, when they're promoting sin and promoting things that aren't of God, then yes, you have to, you have to you know, kind of distance yourself from them. But when we're in a conversation, which is what we're going to enter this morning, and please feel free to put your questions in Facebook Live. We're going to, again today, uh, we'll have a time where I just, after the service, I'm, I'm still on Facebook Live, and we can communicate that way, and I'll do the best to answer your questions, or I'll do the best to say I don't, I don't know, because I'm not an expert on this subject by far. Um, but uh, So that was number one. Number two... I realize there's many people of color. I have friends that are from all different uh, races that have experienced all different things. This morning, I'm gonna specifically be talking about the African-American community and what our country uh, has created in enslaving an entire race of people. And so we're gonna talk about that a little bit. But what I wanted to start with was the amazing, it's Pentecost Sunday today. We're celebrating essentially the birth of the church. We're celebrating the time when the Holy Spirit, which Jesus promised before he left, came down in tongues of fire on people's heads. I have no idea what that looked like. Kind of frightening. There's a rushing wind. It pulls all these people together. And as Pastor Michelle spoke to the kids, the thing the Holy Spirit did was bring unity, was bring inclusion. They could have just spoke Aramaic if they wanted. They could have just preached and, hey, sorry, you don't understand the, the language. Hey, too, too bad for you. But the Holy Spirit, the first act of the Holy Spirit was to translate. Here's who the Holy Spirit translated to. You heard the story from Pastor Michelle. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native tongue? Now, oftentimes I'll hear people go, oh, that's when the gift of tongues came. No, it's when the gift of ears came. The gift of tongues, Paul says, when you speak in tongues, people don't know what you're saying. You need an interpreter. In this particular case, the Holy Spirit, they were speaking and the Holy Spirit was translating. Two, Parthians, Medes, Alamites, Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Phrygia, Pamphylia, that's 10, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judean, Cretans, 
Arabs. We hear them all, what? Declaring the wonders of God. God is for justice. He's for inclusion. He's for equality. That is our Heavenly Father. But that is not what we have today. Today we have systems that we have created that God has not created um, that do the opposite. Now I'll be talking about a few of those systems this morning. But throughout this whole process, you know, we get sidetracked with riots and all those types of things. We miss the main thing. And the main thing is that we have created institutions and systems that are unhealthy. And hopefully what you'll get from the end of the sermon is that when unhealthy people are in power, they always go after the disenfranchised. I don't care if it's a coach. I don't care if it's a teacher. I don't care if it's a priest. I don't care if it's a politician or a policeman or a pastor or a Boy Scout troop leader. People, unhealthy people in positions of power always go after the disenfranchised. You say, John, you're bringing up slavery. I had nothing to do with slavery, okay? I realize that. And maybe your ancestors didn't. Maybe you immigrated here later, and it's like... Um, but I just want to give you just a little insight into why we can't just dismiss that this happened, you know, several hundred years ago, so it should be all fixed by now. I am a pastor in the Free Methodist Church. I love our denomination. I can't even tell you how. I love, in Southern California, I love its diversity. I love, there's very uh, people who have, who are deep thinkers, who wrestle, like wrestle with these things. Not 144 characters wrestle, not meme wrestle, but actually wrestle, draft things to put in our book of discipline that make statements of justice. So in, in our particular denomination, we were founded on the principle of this first freedom. This is our first freedom. All races to worship together in unity. That's our very first one. We were born out of the anti-slavery movement. I love this about our denomination, right? Back when B.T. Roberts, who started it, uh, came out, the average pastor had eight slaves. This broke his heart. We're not going to get into the other ones, but it's, it's the freedom of the poor to be treated with dignity, the freedom of women to lead uh, in equality with men, the uh, freedom for uh, laity um, and clergy to have uh, equal voice so that the pastor isn't just, you know, king or queen. And, uh, and then finally, the freedom for um, the Holy Spirit to lead our worship. And when the Holy Spirit leads our worship, it's all different voices. All different cultures. But here's the thing. Our denomination started in 1860. Three years ago, we installed our first African-American superintendent, my friend Charles. First. 160 years it takes us to get one African-American superintendent. And these are people who aren't racist, who, don't, who are trying, but they're not trying hard enough. And so what I want to talk about this morning is how do we do this? Because for you, and you might be white, and again, I, you know, if, if I say things that offend you, and you know, I, 
I want to do my best. I, I want to be really kind. I don't want to bash the church. Um, but, I, but I do want to shed light on things. Uh, look, I'm rolling up my sleeves like, like I'm going to get injured in a fight. Um, but I just, I know what it feels like to be white and helpless. And it's like, man, there's all this racism and I, I don't know what to do. So my prayer is that when I get done this morning, I give us all some tools to move forward and I expose some things that have been around for a very long time. The reason I know that there's, and, and one of my challenges this week as I was doing this, I, I don't like using the word racist for the very reason, not that there isn't racism, but it lets people off the hook too easy. Because all they have to do is just say, well, I'm not racist, and then there we go. And that's great. Don't be racist. Trust me. If, if you can remember one thing from this Sunday, don't be racist. Okay? But that's a low bar. The question should be this. How effective am I being in challenging unjust systems for people who are disenfranchised? How effective am I? Not am I racist. I, I, I have a lot of friends from all different backgrounds. Very few of them are racist. Maybe two of them, okay, uh, that I know of. I'm sure, there's, I'm sure it exists more than that. But the point is I'm trying to make is don't make that your bar. Make your bar. How effective am I being challenging the institutions that take advantage of the marginalized? And that could be anybody. And so I'm going to talk about... Uh, a very famous parable. I, 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 I've already gave you the, I'll give you the ending before I give you the beginning because you know the ending anyway, pretty much. But it talks about this idea of like, what are we truly responsible for and what is it truly going to cost us? Because George Floyd, all he did was expose what's been going on forever is that broken people in power if they're not challenged if the institutions that they're they're hiding behind don't step up these are the things that happen george floyd is us he's us so the reason we're outraged is because there was a video but I assure you, this has been going on for a long time when there was no video. So, what can we do? Well, Jesus was on his way, and another group came to listen to him. And what would happen is, there would be these rabbi schools, okay? So Jesus was a rabbi, and he had his disciples, and then there would be these other rabbi schools from different things of thought. And so as one rabbi was teaching, a rabbi school would show up and they'd sit and then their rabbi would do what we call a challenge and repost. They would challenge the rabbi who was speaking and then the, the rabbi speaking would uh, give his answer and then they could spar or whatever or the rabbi could go with his students and say this is why this person was wrong or what have you. And this is what happened with Jesus. He's there teaching, and it says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law, this dude knows his stuff, stood up to test Jesus. Okay, 
This is totally free. It has nothing to do with my sermon, uh, but it's a really, really good advice. Don't test Jesus. You're going to lose, okay? Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is so powerful, you guys, because the church of Jesus Christ wasn't birthed to get us to eternal life. It was birthed so that we could be an institution of justice, that we could bring people to Jesus, to model a different way than the power structures of politics and of the world. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Sounds like a good spiritual question. And then Jesus, because don't challenge Jesus. Remember that. Keep that in the back of your mind. What is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus just takes it. He's just like, whoop, and then he like goes back. Probably not like that. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, You've answered correctly. If you love God and you truly love people, you're basically on your way to becoming like Jesus. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. You got it. You summed it all up. But he wanted to test himself, justify himself. So he asked Jesus, oh man, and who's my neighbor? I made it to verse 29. <laughs> and who's my neighbor? I have a neighbor, his name's Ralph. Uh, really cool dude. Uh, we take in each other's trash cans. Um, I've been at that house for, I think, 12 years. So I've, I know him pretty well. He rides a Harley. I'm glad he's retired because he used to wake up at six to go to work and fire up the Harley. And so he doesn't do that anymore. Very happy for that. Ralph is no risk to love. Ralph costs me nothing to love him. I can take him over some zucchinis. He can send me over something that he's got. And we're neighbors. Who's my neighbor? George Floyd was your neighbor. He was my neighbor. And because of systems that we've created, um, he's no longer with us. So, what do we do? Well, the cool thing about parables is they're like video of something that happened, except Jesus is responsible for all the facts. And so the facts that he uses are very, very important to instruct us of how to be a neighbor, of how to respond to injustice, of how to respond to systems that aren't fair. I just want to step aside before we get into his parable. There's a lot of talk about white privilege and privilege with this and privilege with that and oftentimes I'll hear people say well I I didn't have any privilege I grew up poor I you know worked hard my parents worked hard we were by no means privileged we just kind of went through life and we worked we all worked and so I'll just share my story a little bit 
I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, we had money at that time. We belonged to a, a country club. It was mostly white, I guess. I remember, I don't know. All I cared is they had a pool, okay? So that was my thing. And then my dad uh, ended up losing that, and he's called into ministry. He, he accepts the Lord, and he's called into ministry, and we move to Pasadena. And um, we have no money. And, and so um, I am in the public school, and in fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, I was in a school, schools that were predominantly African-American. And so uh, I went through a bunch of different things with that, as you can imagine, being just other, right? Um, and so uh, here's what I learned in those four years. The people abusing me had black skin. And the people saving me had black skin. The people rescuing me, the people pulling me up had black skin. But the whole time, I knew that wasn't where I was going to stay. The fact that I knew that wasn't where I was going to stay is the mindset of white privilege. That I always have an avenue up. I always have a, hand, a help up. I always know that if I work hard and I do my best, I, I'm going to be rewarded for that. Other people don't have that mindset because they don't have that opportunity and that option. So I just want you to understand, I understand what it's like to work hard and to be poor and to go, I didn't have any privilege. But if you take two people, one's white and one's black and everything else is equal, education, socioeconomic status, all that kind of stuff, the white person has an advantage. If you, if, if you don't get that, I've, I'll have some books you can read. I've got some things you can look into. So I just, I just want to make that clear. <laughs> Okay, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell in the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So this is, this, this guy didn't do anything. He, he just went from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's all he was doing. Okay, didn't, didn't do anything, just that's what happened. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, we can read this in a bunch of different ways. We can say institutionalized religion failed him, which it did. We can say that. We can say, oh, these people are in power, um, and so they didn't, they, you know, they, they're too busy or whatever, but that's probably true too. We can also say, if a priest or a Levite actually touches a dead man, they become unclean and they can't do their duties. They're, they have to be re-consecrated. And so we can let them off the hook to say, well, they didn't want to touch the dead body because, you know, it's like, and they didn't have anything to do with it. They're just going on their way. But they could have at least gone close enough to the man to see if he was breathing. Because here's the thing, I'm not a doctor, but in order to live, you need to breathe. And in order to breathe, I can tell if you're breathing or not. There's lots of different ways. 
They needed to slow down. They needed to get close enough to see what was going on. If he was not dead, they would be in their right to help him. But they didn't. They didn't get close enough. And then Jesus uses this great, oh man, Jesus just, it's just a gut punch. He says, but a Samaritan. Now you have to understand what happened with Samaritans is uh, when the Babylonian exile came, the Babylonians took all of, um, all of the uh, elite from Israel and left everybody else. And so they left everyone else and then they inserted some people to occupy that area. And then they, um, uh, uh, and then when everybody came back, when the elite came back, they said, oh, these people intermarried with other races and that's against the Bible and all this. And so they became a second class. So for Jesus to switch this and go, but, this, but a second class citizen, like it would be like this. Let's say uh, Tom Brady goes on the right side and moves on and Drew Brees goes to the right side and moves on uh, but a Raider fan uh, go, goes over, right? Has a cheap shot because I know Jeremy's watching. But a Samaritan, this would have been other. This would have been dirty. They called them dogs. And Jesus uses them. Why? Because the Holy Spirit always speaks in terms of unity and, and inclusion. As he traveled, in other words, he was busy. He had somewhere to go. He, he, he was interrupted, came where the man was, and when he saw him. And here's my first plea to you as we move on to what can we do. See it. Don't, you don't have to see the video. I haven't seen the video. I don't need to see the video. But can you see the injustice? Can you see the situation? Can you see the plight can you see it? He, he, he saw it. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. If you can do nothing else moving forward, can you at least own it that there's a problem? Can you at least own that, that and see it and go, man, I, and, and, and stop dismissing it? It's an institutional injustice is what's going on. It started when we enslaved a race of people. Most of us are where we are because of the decisions of our ancestors. They are here for decisions their ancestors did not want to make. And we think we're going to fix it in so many hundred years. Our denomination can't even fix it in 160. Like get one thing right. We're moving forward, but this is just the reality of it. So just to see it, just to acknowledge it, just to embrace it. Okay, this is something we've created because it's the human condition. Anybody unhealthy in power preys on those who are most disenfranchised. You could switch, you could intermix any race for anything. If, if, if we were brown skin and we enslaved all the Swedes, okay? We'd be doing the same thing. 
This just happens to be our reality. And we have to acknowledge it. We have to see it. And we have to at least take pity. Here's the third thing. He went to him. He went to him. He didn't wait for them, for him to get better and come to him. Like, hey, I, 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 got, all, I got all the bandages here. I got all the, I got everything here. It's all right here. You just come on. This is one of the reasons why, um, for in just a small way, Living Spring tries to go out into the community. To not just have four walls and go, hey, service time is at 10. Make sure you're here. We, that's, that's great. I love service time at 10. But that's not going. That's not doing. It's not acting. It's not enough. It's a start to see them and take pity on those who are disenfranchised. That's great. Now we got to figure out what to do, how to go. One of the reasons why I know that there's injustice in this particular area is because every single African-American friend I have, and I have tons of them, say the exact same thing. What, do, do, I, do I not believe them? And so I have to figure out a way to go. Now this is so cool because he bandages his wounds pouring on oil and wine. That means that guy had enough money to travel with bandages and oil and wine and money. He was a person of power, a person of influence. He was doing fine. And he decided to take some of it and to go, I'm going to help this man. I can't help everybody, but I can help somebody. Here's the fourth thing. Then he put the man on his own donkey. <clears throat> the way you get a man onto your donkey is to embrace him and to put him on your back. You don't just get him up there. You have to be engaged. It has to be physical. It has to be really close. It has to be messy and uncomfortable. When you engage to help someone who cannot help themselves, it is not easy. It's hard. And it's bloody and it's messy. And he takes him and he puts him on his donkey. And he takes him to the inn and took care of him. The next day, so he now pays for this dude his own thing. He takes out two silver coins and he gave them to the innkeeper. Two silver coins are two denarii, it's two days wages. He basically worked for two days to pay to have healing brought to this man. To look after him, he says. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Wow. So, 
I'm going to pay you to house him. And I'll pay to make sure he's taken care of from here on out. I was at a hotel one time on my honeymoon. Lisa and I were newly married and our uncle, Uncle Russell, paid for us to have that night at the Roosevelt Hotel. And so I get there, we're 24, no, 22 or something like that. And um, there's like a refrigerator and it's like filled with food. And, uh, and I'm starving because, you know, when you're at your wedding and everybody gets to eat, but you're smiling and shaking hands and doing all that kind of stuff. Um, we weren't socially distancing back then. And uh, so we get there and there's like Oreo cookies and almonds and all this stuff. And so I open up the Oreo cookies and I eat like two Oreo cookies. I put that aside. I open up the almonds. I'm like taking some almonds. I'm like, honey, have some almonds. And it's like, this is awesome. It's like a buffet. Well, then I noticed at the top of the fridge, all the prices, like almonds, $7, Oreo cookies, $6. And I realized I just spent like 40 bucks worth of worthless snacks. So I was nervous. I was just like, oh my goodness, I don't know, I don't know what to do. What am I going to tell Uncle Russell? Uncle Russell, I, I'll work it off. I'll do whatever. He says, uh, I get back and I'm like, look, you're going to get a bill for almonds. And, uh, and he says to me, no, that's, that's why I put you up there, so that you could just be taken care of. And that had such a deep impact upon me. How much more? That was my honeymoon. That was almonds. This is a man's life. How much more do we invest into this? That where it hurts, where we take responsibility. Jesus goes on. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? In other words, Jesus takes this whole thing and flips it on his head. Maybe it's not that we have neighbors. Maybe the point is that we are a neighbor. That we get to know people regardless of where they're from. That we take a posture of listening. A posture of saying, you know what, your voice is really important here. Your voice, your perspective is really important here. We want to hear you. And maybe you're in a situation where at your company, you know, there's a certain demographic and that's just the demographic of your company. But do you know someone else with a different perspective? Do you know someone living in poverty? We can say, hey, we're making this decision. How would that land for you? Someone who's disenfranchised. People in power, unhealthy people in power always prey on the disenfranchised. And the question I'm just going to ask this morning is why is it always African-American people that are disenfranchised? And what can we do about it? I don't know. I don't have the answer. I'm sorry. 
But at least we can begin to think of how Jesus thought. I can see it. And I can have pity on it. And then I can go to it. And I'd be willing to get dirty. I'd be willing to risk my own wealth. My own time. My own, I allow my heart to break. Who is a neighbor? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. The one who had mercy on him. The expert couldn't even say the Samaritan. It was just the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus tells us this. Go and do. In your context, I don't know what that looks like. In your particular context, it might be sending a text to somebody of color and say, man, I don't even know what you're going through right now. I'm praying for you. I'm here for you. But you're going. For you, it might be to realize that sending a meme and a heartfelt Facebook post, that's great. But it can't stop there. It can't stop at just saying, oh man, this sucks. It does. But to begin to ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, if I had a tongue of fire upon my head now, and I was speaking, who could I speak to? What could I say that would bring unity, that would bring equality, that would bring inclusion? And the Lord might just say to you, go talk to your neighbor, Ralph. And that might be just where it begins. They might say to you, listen, next time you do that project, don't take credit for it. Why don't you let the people on your team who might be below you take credit for it? I want to end with this. And it's this question. What do you do when you have the most influence or the most power in a situation? How do you act? When you're the one with the most power, this might be a mom with your kids, a dad with your kids. It might be a teacher with your students. It might be a pastor with the congregation or a board uh, meeting. It might be a, a politician, a president, a coach. What do you do when you're the one in the room with the most power? I want to end with this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He knew he's the most important person on the planet. And he knew that he had come from God and he was returning to God. So he knew I'm the most powerful person ever. And I'm leaving to go back to be with my heavenly Father. I have nothing to lose. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. The audacity to give up power. Here's what he says. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to the place. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked. As Taylor comes back up, he says this, you call me teacher 
and Lord. These are positions of power. And rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do. As I have done for you. When you're the most important person, when you're the most powerful person, when you have some type of a privilege, some type of, a, of an advantage, what are you going to do with it? And maybe we can begin, I can't stop riots. I can't fix racial injustice. I wish I could. I can't. But I can do something. I can do something. I can say something. If there's somebody making some racially insensitive joke or talking about a people group, I can stand up to that. I can do that at least. I can donate to institutions that fight the very thing that we've, we're seeing. I can do that. I can talk to my friends of color and say, can you help me with a sermon? <laughs> they all, <laughs> which thank you if you're all watching, you help. I can do that. So what we're going to do is this. Um, Taylor's going to lead us in a final song. And uh, I knew we were going to go over today. And that's, I don't care. But um, we're going to continue with the question and answer time afterwards. So if, while you're worshiping with um, Taylor or what have you, um, I'll get on Facebook Live. We've got another person on Facebook Live. And we, as we have questions... Um, you can for those of you who have my cell, you can text me. Uh, and yeah, we'll go at it. Um, and hopefully, collectively, we can come up with some ideas to make a difference. Let me pray for us. Lord God, so often we dismiss acting because we're overwhelmed. And I, I know my friends, I know Living Spring Church not racist of course not but it's a bad bar how do we bring justice how do we bring mercy how do we bring shalom How do we bring reconciliation, equality? God, we need the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for that in your precious name.